I'm Tim Richard. And I'm Michelle Bolin. And you're listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. More Train, Less Pain. On today's episode, Tim and I pop open the champagne and celebrate the completion of season two by summarizing our biggest takeaways. Season two has had some amazing guests and topics. Tim and I were able to jump into PRI again, riff on some of our random ideas, and dissect why beliefs inevitably swing back and forth. Guests such as David Gray, Joel Smith, Sarah Duvall, Seth Oberst, Campo, Lance Goike, Zach Couples, and Lee Taft dropped off some knowledge bombs as well. In this episode, Tim and I try to consolidate all of those knowledge bombs and turn them into actionable implementation strategies. The topics we riff on include the dichotomy of perspective, understanding the big picture versus the person in front of you, knowing what you want it to look like and making it look like that related to the importance of having a biomechanical model, adaptation training versus learning training, inhibition before facilitation, and much, much more. So without further ado, here is our season two finale. Whether you are building strength or building back stronger, you need to check out Anchor. Anchor provides the portable space-saving cable trainer that is powering athletes' training across the world of sports and performance. The company's newest product, the Anchor Pro, provides a professional-grade cable training experience at a fraction of the cost of a traditional cable machine. Visit ancoretraining.com and get an exclusive 10% off your Anchor Pro order for being a more train, less pain listener. Enter the code MTLP at checkout and get your anchor and train without limits today. Welcome, 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 Tim. I feel like I haven't seen you in a few months, but we are here to recap season two, which has been amazing. We're going to run down our top three takeaways from season two, how they've affected our uh, respective practices. So basically like going through our season two guests and how we've implemented things into our own practice. Um, And I don't know about you, but this is definitely a true learning process for me, not only trying to be good as like a podcast host, which I think is like in a skill of itself, but also like I take notes when we have guests on and you did a bunch of solo episodes and I went back and I listed, listened to your episodes with Joel Smith, David Gray, Zach Couples, and I had like a few pages of notes in my notebook, which was really nice to reflect back on. Yeah, I think, well, firstly, it's, it's exciting to be recording this episode. I feel like season two was a bit of a whirlwind and I, it, it's, it's amazing how much, I think, great conversation we were able to have with these guests and just so fortunate to have this medium to have those conversations and a platform to share the, you know, share these conversations with, with the people that listen to us. Um, but yeah, it's, it's been really, really fun to go back and listen to some of this stuff. I mean, you did great with, Mike Camperini and Sarah Duval, who I didn't really know of that much before, but I've, I've since kind of gone into some of her blog posts and recent Instagram posts and she's awesome. So yeah, selfishly, I think these episodes are always a really, really good opportunity to go back into the conversations that we've had and to try to tease out any more clinical pearls that, you know, we can use to be better physical therapists, better strength conditioning coaches, better trainers, um, it feels kind of nice. Not that I, with some of these people, can't just like pick up the call and have a f- conversation with them, but it's almost like leveraging the podcast to have selfishly a conversation with someone who may not like normally just be like, okay, yeah, let's let's have a conversation with. Especially people like, you know, Lee Taft. I think I can call him up and have a conversation with him. But he was someone like years ago that you know I took his Speed Insider course and watched all the stuff. And I just saw him as someone who like, I would never have kind of access to, or just kind of so far beyond me that just 
looking up to him, I was like, I would never be friendly with him, if that makes sense. And now it's like, oh, we had a great conversation and being able to be like, he's the coolest guy ever, just personally. And he's just, he's just down to have any sort of conversation. So that for me is like a humbling experience. Yeah. Let that be a lesson to you listeners. If you want to have conversations with people that are inaccessible, start a podcast (laughs) at the very least it'll let you do that. Or just like simply just like reach out to people like more than likely, like, excuse me, like no one's going to say no. Everyone's pretty friendly in this industry. So it's just nice. Okay. You want to get started on these, uh, top three takeaways? Yeah. What are we going to, so this is just kind of top, top three clinical or like in the gym takeaways is what we're going to title this list. Yep. And we'll, we'll go bottom. We'll go three to, to one. Okay. I, I can kick first. us off. I think, I think with something that's purely biomechanical that I think has been something that I've been considering more and more since the conversation that I had with Zach um, many months ago. And that would be that would be this, this concept of sacral nutation and the utility of hinge-based postures. So I think for a while with some of Bill Hartman's stuff and some of PRI stuff, there was this premium put on like posterior pelvic tilt, you know, tucking the hips underneath your center of mass, and a lot of this discussion about sacral counter-nutation and how we want to try to reclaim that with individuals that are you know, overly extended or that have this strong anterior weight-bearing pattern. And I, I think for a while, you know, I've been in that camp where as an athlete, if you tell me to tuck my hips under me, I really just kind of squeeze my butt and both of my femurs go into external rotation. And that's a lot of people. And especially because a lot of trainers and therapists have been educated with this notion of like knees out all the time. Like we want glutes to be active, to externally rotate things at the hip. So it sort of made some sense to me intuitively that we can't be doing that all the time. And that if we do that all the time, we're probably robbing our body of some movement options. Um, I remember I first started to think about this, listening to Joel Smith stuff on the Just Fly Sports Performance podcast with him talking about how like an anterior pelvic tilt and a nutated sacrum actually lets you get more backside mechanic with sprinting and apply force in a, a much more efficient manner if you're trying to project yourself horizontally through space. So from a performance standpoint, it was like, okay, we can't have tucked hips all the time, even though tucked hips might be beneficial from like a respiratory variability standpoint, from movement variability standpoint, like we need to at least lean into pun intended, um, some degree of anterior pelvic tilt, some degree of sacral mutation. I remember Zach came out with an article about, I think it was the sway back posture, probably six to eight months ago. Um, talking about how his first step with these people is introducing some low level hinge based activities, like a, you know, like a hinge with, with forearm support on a chair and a yoga block between the knees and getting people to just relax into that posture and open up the backside of the hip. And that's really what those hinge based postures are really, really good at. And how he's been using that to restore hip internal rotation, to restore sacral nutation And that that's been really, really useful for people that are perpetual, like butt grippers or glute grippers. So that's something I started doing clinically. And then uh, going back and listening to your episode with Sarah Duvall, Zach and I also mentioned that I think a lot in our podcast, Um, but going back to the episode that you recorded with Sarah Duvall, she also mentioned something like that, like utilizing some type of an asymmetrical hinge-based posture to get, I think her context was like a postpartum woman that got used to you know, just kind of shoving her butt forward in space as a strategy to not fall down, to, to deal with, um, you know, center of mass weight shifts that, that occur with, with pregnancy. And so it was kind of nice. It was like two really smart people that I really, really respect talk about how, no, this, this hinge based posturing is actually really, really important in order to open up the hip in order to promote movement variability. And I think that's something that the industry got away from for whatever reason, like the pendulum sort of swung too far in this direction of tuck the hips, um, you know, hips under center of mass, that, that sort of stuff. That's great. So from his episode, um, one of my many takeaways with Zach was kind of what you alluded to learning to move with less tension. So being able to hit hinge without butt squeezing, 
it's, that's a huge factor. And in diving into if you're teaching someone how to hinge, how are they doing it is very important. And then secondly, he mentioned that he used to hesitate on teaching people how to hinge and he would teach like squat and other things first. And that now he's kind of like reverting back on that. And I literally think that's where I was. I was delaying with a lot of people to incorporate hinging into their programs but especially with some of his recent YouTube videos and ideas, and of course, like the episode with him, adding a hinging aspect into like a step up or a cable chop to kind of get people to push their hips back with less tension is probably a better way to kind of go about doing that. Yeah. And I think just as a clinical note, there's like, there's hinging and there's hinging, right? There's like old school, we kind of thought about, all right, stick your butt back, but keep your chest up and sort of breaking that the relationship that we have with the thoracic and pelvic diaphragms. But I think Mm -hmm. if you teach hinging in a way that respects what Zach would call the stack, like the alignment of the pelvic floor and of the diaphragm and the head, then I, I think a lot of these can be hugely impactful for regaining motion and not something that's deleterious in that regard. Yeah. And finding loading strategies to support that, like a chop with a cable coming across, it's really hard to break that like chest coming up as you're going through like a squat, uh, excuse me, a chop motion. Yeah. I I like that quite a bit like that. Yeah. They would have to be actively trying to keep their chest up going through a chop, which yeah, for sure. Yeah. That's a fantastic takeaway, Tim. Amazing. All right. So my number three would be from the Seth Oberst. <laughs> um, I actually listened to this this morning when I was working out, but um, again, for like the third time, I think. Um, he talked about a lot of things that are kind of cool and interesting to me, but at the end of the day, maybe not really truly applicable Sometimes, especially this morning when I was like, you know, doing chin-ups and listening to Seth, I question whether I should be creating more of a holistic package type of service. But, you know, that's, that's kind of hard to kind of navigate with like, like guardrails of staying with what I do. Um, but I do appreciate and having him for some of the people that I work with to be able to incorporate like some of the things that he's really good at. Um, But anyways, that was a side note, but I'm going to read a quote from him quote. When people understand the big picture, you can best decide how to use that for the person in front of you. And that was kind of just like a side note that really wasn't anything that we were diving into, but I just, I really attracted that and was thinking about that for a while of, I think we're kind of a yin and yang great situation on the podcast because I'm very like theoretical and like big picture and you really bring people in, which I think is important too, of like implementation. And, you know, I was just kind of thinking about like the best of both worlds. And I think a lot of people do get lost and not being able to see the big picture, but then also like the person in front of them. And I think you have to have that duality of both views and you have to place um, importance and value on, on having those. And I think when people struggle or coaches struggle, they lose sight of one of those. Yeah, I, I like that. I think that's tremendously impactful. If you were to summarize that point, like in a short sentence or in a few words, how would you phrase that? That's a great question. Um, I would say, keeping in mind the big picture and then what things are going to get you there in that may be more of like an exercise selection programming mindset, just making sure that I even question myself of like, do I have the big picture in mind here? And then also like the person who I have in front of me, does this apply within a context to them? But I also think from a trainer perspective, um, People have a tendency to fear, and of course, everyone does, including myself, like maybe sort of like a lack of confidence or fearing that they don't know enough versus not knowing what to do with what you do know. 
and that's a whole different thing in of itself. And that's the big picture accent, um, aspect of like organizing your thoughts, knowing what, you know, when to apply it and then kind of addressing like individuals, um, one-on-one. Yeah. I mean, not to unintentionally plug your product, but I think that's what you do a great job of with your classroom. Like I, you're, you're never going to know enough. Like you're never like you shouldn't, it should be exactly. sort of asymptotic towards this infinite amount of knowledge that you possess about a thing like that, that should kind of be the goal. But if the thinking is I'm not going to be able to help a person in X situation until I, until I know why I, I don't, I don't think people give themselves enough credit with what they do already know. And then to your point, it goes down to, can you, can you execute on that effectively? And it's definitely hard to sell like people sitting down and consolidating their knowledge. Like that's just a hard thing to sell because it's just not sexy, but it's so important because, you know, Seth talks big picture all the time and you kind of reel him in and he's able to hook, line and sinker on an individual basis. And I think a lot of people who may struggle to like move forward or grow can't really come back and forth between those two things. Yeah. The thing that I loved about, I mean, I, I love so many things about Seth. I think he's, yes. he's a national treasure, but um, <laughs> I can't remember if this was episode two or one with him. I believe this was the season two episode, but I think I, I think I just backed him into a corner and I was just like, all right, what does a session look like with you? And he gave this whole thing and he's like, sometimes we're doing humming. Sometimes we're talking about sleep, yada, yada, yada. He's like, but if they come in with knee pain, I'm sure to give them something for their knee. I'm like, okay, cool. Like I, I absolutely like, <laughs> cause even if that isn't like, even if it's only marginally effective at, at treating the thing, it at least is, is way more of meeting an individual where, where they're at and kind of taking them along this journey as opposed to trying to fit them fit, you know, fit their square peg in this round hole of no, like I want to do nutrition-based interventions or sleep-based interventions. Yes. I mean, I think to me, what you're describing is sort of this, this necessary duality of having this expansive view of our fields and the fields around our fields, as well as, okay, but these are the tactics I actually use to address these things. And I think practitioners get themselves in the trouble when they, when they become you know, too pie in the sky or too like, these are the things I do and that is all I do. And yes. I think we as practitioners should always be seeking to live, like David Gray says, like right on the fence. So, so you can kind of see both sides of the fence. That was a great quote by him too. He's great. Yeah, he's great. He's, yeah. yeah, I feel like he's the, um, maybe it's, maybe it's that they both have gray in their name, but he's like this generation's gray cook. I would agree with that. In like folksy wisdom, but, uh, you know, David's a Irish boy and Gray's a Florida boy or Tennessee yeah, or something. It's more fun to listen to <laughs> the accent. All right. What's your, your number two here? I'll kick it off with a quote from one of our more recent guests. Know what you want it to look like and make it look like that. So I think of Lee Taft, I think of David Gray, and I think of Joel Smith. So to me, what this quote means, and I don't have a good title for point number two here, but it's just something I wanted to riff on. To me, what this quote means is that you need a biomechanical model to operate under. Without a biomechanical model, we're all just dealing in like chronic pain science and behavior change and like workload management. And those are all really, really valuable things. But I, I still think it's very important to have a biomechanical model that you are constantly refining, constantly questioning. So you need to know based on what you're having a person do, what you want that thing to look like. If it's walking or running or squatting or deadlifting or jumping, you need to know where that person is in relation to your biomechanical perfect ideal of that thing. And then you want to nudge them to make the thing that they're doing look a little bit more like the perfect ideal of what you imagine that thing to be. And then within that, you also want to acknowledge that there's a bandwidth of acceptable biomechanics and individual variability. And I think, so how I'm putting these pieces together in my mind, as I imagine like Lee coaching, uh, you know, a cut or an acceleration step or something, Someone's doing it in, in one way and he makes a subtle cue or changes the drill and gets them to do it just a little bit better. He doesn't show them the perfect way, 
he just gets gets them to nudge in a direction that he thinks is going to be positive for you know performance or health. David Gray, him and I had a long discussion about this uh, Olympic level race walker that he's currently training and how with the demands of her sport, it's so much frontal plane hip hiking and crossover stepping that what she needs is the ability to rotate more at the thorax without this, without getting into these huge hip heights. So he has this biomechanical model of what her movement profile needs to look like outside of her sport. And he just feeds her, like we talked about a staggered stance chop over and over and over where she's not allowed to do like a huge hip hike of that left hip that she's loading into. It needs to be more transverse plane. It needs to be more like clean relative motions. Zach Couples even mentioned something about like putting people in positions of restriction and then making them deal with it. So having a biomechanical model of what a hinge or a squat or a march ought to look like, getting a person right up to the point where their movement quality would start to fall apart and then just have them be there and breathe for a while. And I think what Joel Smith really, really excels at is having this, this biomechanical model, having an idea of what, it, what he wants the thing to look like, but then getting a person to sort of play around and explore their own movement, their own bodies, in order to go in a direction of what that biomechanical model ought to look like. And I think he's like the most laissez-faire is the term that comes to mind, but like the most open-ended with that process, the most open-minded with what the ideal biomechanics might look like, but he still has a biomechanical model that he operates under. So again, know what you want it to look like, have a biomechanical model and make it look like that, not in one fell swoop um, and not really in one not really in the same process, like individualize the process to the client in front of you, to the patient in front of you, but have them explore or, you know, attempt to do things in a slightly different way, change the task, change the environment, change the cue, and over time nudge them towards biomechanical perfection. Love that. That reminds me of two things, like David Gray's definition of rehab was kind of like, you know, you kind of got pushed back a little bit because it was just so simple. I think uh, I can't directly quote him, but I was thinking it was something in line of like, make sure they're like one step further up or. Yeah. I think, I think it was something better. like the goal of rehab is to advance to the next phase of rehab. Yes, 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 yes. Just God, that was great, Tim. Thank you so much. Yeah. And it's just like so clear, so simple, right? That's it. Right. Just one step better. And then it kind of reminds me of, um, Zach couples of like kind of talking about like the value of a coach, like the difference between like open loop activities. You're talking about spike ball and like, yeah, that has value. Like people can explore and feel the movement of their, their bodies. Um, but our job is like, when you talk about biomechanical model, I talk, uh, I think about like, well, when they're in our hands, it's a very targeted approach, targeted adaptation. Like if you, um, want a specific outcome, you have to create a specific intervention. And so like, if you have that biomechanical model or very clear about it, you know what that specific thing will kind of get them to that next step in rehab. Yeah. And I think you have to know, this is, this is something that I constantly struggle with, with mm -hmm. both training myself and training my athletes. It's like in a perfect world, it's sort of like what Joel and I talked about, about shoes versus barefoot and minimalist training. Like in a perfect world, you don't need shoes. Like you can wear as little shoe as possible. Like that would be perfect. And that would be the thing that we're trying to trend towards. But we don't live in a perfect world. And most people will never get to the point where that's an intelligent training decision. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to go in that direction. But like most people just can't deal with a total lack of structure and chaos at the foot. Just like most people can't deal with a total lack of structure and chaos in their own like exercise routine or, or movement practice. So yeah, to your point, I, I think good coaching is knowing exactly how much control and exactly how much order you need to impose on this training experience, this training plan, the patient, the client in front of you, and when to let them self-organize, when to embrace a little bit of chaos, maybe a little bit of a deviation from, from an acceptable biomechanical norm that you have in your head. Yeah. And I feel like it's a little different with athletes because I get, they get put in that situation 
more often, right? They get put into an open loop kind of activity a lot more in their sport. So it's especially dealing with general population clients, they probably never create those situations for themselves. Like kids aren't going out into playing anymore. Adults really kind of just like lock up or in their routine. So yeah, making sure like there's a little bit of both. Yeah. I also love, I mean, I I think about this example that David brought up all the time with this race walker where it's like, because she's regularly doing 20 mile walks with this, you know, really kind of like biomechanically odd, what like race walking is not like a natural pattern, like normal walking or running is. So it's like subconsciously her brain will always try to solve every movement problem by doing the thing that she does a ton of. So it's like, you know, 10 breaths of a front foot elevated goblet split squat hold for 45 seconds isn't really going to do the trick. Like we need to feed her like a way higher volume and a way higher intensity of other positions and other movement demands to meaningfully expand that movement repertoire. Yeah. I like that a lot. My number two. Go for it. Um, This pretty much comes through uh, the leaked half episode, but a lot of people talked about this. It was create sessions based around learning. And I think I've did incorporate this into my coaching prior, but I've really tried to really hit it home. And especially I tried to approach sessions as a teacher of what do I want to teach this person today? And then thinking about programming in regards to how can they best learn that skill Um, and picking one really skill or piece of a skill and really focusing on that. Um, So Lee Taft said a few things about um, letting the learning process take place. And we kind of touched on this last season, but just being a little bit more patient. And especially when people are doing things for the first time, the second and third set always look better. And so just chill on the first set, like relax, maybe just do a few reps have them do something else, come back or session to session. Cause Zach kind of touched on um, learning a little bit. And he said, every time you learn something new, the amount of movement variability at that task is reduced. And you have to keep that in mind as well. Um, so making sure your client uh, understands the intent of what you're doing or the skill that you're trying to work on and then add context throughout the session of applying that skill or lesson into multiple things. And then also when communicating, make sure that you know clients, how they like information delivered to them. Um, I think that was a huge point that, that Lee went after, but he even got into a few things about you know, it's not about getting better at the drill. It's about getting better at the skill. You want athletes to feel like they've mastered pieces of a skill. And he gave the example of, you know, when you're doing a sled push, well, can they feel that push? Can you feel the leg pushing behind them to push the sled forward? Um, getting them to recognize things like that. And that's allows them to add context to things, put pieces together. And that's, what's really going to transition into you know, the open loop activities. Um, That's that specific targeting of what you want them to get out of working with you. I have a lot of thoughts. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) This is something I think about constantly. This is like when we did this episode of like when we essentially did like the random show episode with, with a check-in just to see kind of the state Mm -hmm. of, of both of us as human beings, then what we're doing differently in practice. I remember I mentioned that when I do my remote programming now, I have a column where it's just progression. And I I tell that person how I want the exercise progressed over the four week program. So Uh like, you know, the obvious one is load, like in the the context of like a trap bar deadlift or a squat, but a lot of times it'll be like feel or repetitions or power. Um, I use feel a lot. And, And when feel is the thing that I'm trying to progress, really that is, that, that's a learning adaptation. Like I'm trying to get that drill to feel more fluid for them to feel more competent doing that drill. And I think 
there's a principle in uh, neurology by a neuropsychologist named Donald Hebb that's that's been around for a while. And everybody that's taken like a neuro class in college has probably heard this, but neurons that fire together wire together. So what we're, what we're trying to do with certain exercises is get neurons to be more comfortable firing in a certain pattern to reinforce a position that we like in, in favor of a position that we don't like, a movement pattern that we prefer over a pattern that we don't. And I think that's really, really useful. And I think that it's the viewing training as viewing training in the context of learning is more useful than it is not. However, if every exercise that we do is more learning based than training based, mm. then I worry about, you know, Pat Davidson talks about like the brains to balls ratio of, of, <laughs> of, a, of a successful athlete. And it's like, you know, too much balls and no brain, they end up hurt and too much brain and no balls, they end up not training. So I think that there is a time and place for more of this learning training. And then there is a time and place for kind of like letting go, letting self-organization take place and actually chasing a physiologic adaptation. And this would be, I mean, like when Lance was training, he talked about like making a notation of like, all right, man, you're not allowed to think here. I think it was in like for deadlifts or something. Just like, just grab mm -hmm. the bar and push with your legs versus other things we cued the crap out of. So I think it's, it's about knowing when you're pursuing physiologic adaptation training and when you're pursuing more of like a learning-based training approach. And I think to your point, if a person comes in not knowing how to move at all, you won't be able to push physiology with them very much because they might hurt themselves doing a leg press. Like yeah. you need to teach them to, to disassociate hip, you know, hip joint motion from lumbopelvic motion first. So like that skill has to be there first before you load it. So training is this constant process of either maintaining movement skills or acquiring movement skills, and then using those movement skills to chase the actual thing that, that people want, which is typically like a body composition outcome, a performance outcome, a fitness outcome. Yeah, exactly. It's, it, I think since we're quoting guests on our show, what is that line that Zach Couple said? It's not, and no, it's not, or, or either it's like both and and yeah. right? you have to include a little bit of, of both and have a good relationship with the both of them. You can't just totally work on skill and learning because that's just not going to work. And you have to provide people with physiological adaptations. You have to. Yeah. And to, to the point of Mike Camperini, sometimes chasing physiologic adaptations via one thing decreases movement competency in another. So you have to be aware that it's not this infinite positive progression. And if your deadlift goes from 315 to 495, in that process, your body might unlearn how to, how to load a hip well in a cut. And so we just, again, going, going back to the Seth point of having this 30,000 foot view, we have mm -hmm. to know what our interventions have the power of doing. But getting, to this, getting back to this adaptation thing versus learning thing, it, you definitely need both. We definitely need a biomechanical model to get a person to uh, move more like, and, and that is where the, I think the learning stuff comes in. And then we need to know when to let go of that to some degree. Yep. And I'll quote Zach here. You, the last question you asked him was, do you have any advice for people? And he said, slow down your coaching. And I think that's a huge piece of advice because we always want to try to prove our value um, and overcomplicate thing where it's like, you don't really have to do that. Try to make it as simple as possible for people and then add, add things on as you go. Yeah. And then in that process, don't forget to drop things off as they are no longer useful. Yeah. Good point. Good point. That's honestly, uh, that's, you know, the two main yeah. things that I do are physical therapy and remote program design. And the program design tends to be a lot easier long-term because every four weeks we're pruning the program and adding new things in. Whereas mm -hmm. in physical therapy, the, it's really, really easy just to add an exercise or two every session. And then four or five sessions in a person has this like six to eight exercise behemoth that they're supposed to be doing every day. And yep. there's not that inbuilt pruning mechanism that like, okay, this is now a new phase of training. So we're going to like ditch these things. We're going to throw in these things. And we're going to elevate, you know, we're globally elevating things, but we're pruning. 
Yeah. For my remote coaching, one of the biggest things I struggle with is not only like slowing down the coaching, but slowing down the programming in terms of people always even requests like new exercises. And it's like, Hey, you know, like there's a reason why we do this. Like we want to get really good at this and be able to progress it. And over the a four week time span, you're, you're, you're not going to do that very well with this one thing. Um, so knowing when to kind of do that, but then what things you really should just be doing over and over again. Yeah, for sure. Or even I think about, you know, the, the, the IFAS camp really likes like the reaching plate squat to groove the squat pattern. Like you don't progress a reaching plate squat by making the plate heavier. Like you you just kind of get good at it for a few weeks and then it becomes a goblet squat. And then that becomes a double dumbbell front rack rack squat. And then that becomes a zercher of, you know, like there's, there's this progression there, but initially it's just a feel based exercise. And then four weeks later, eight weeks later, you kind of like earn the right to train that. And then it becomes a load based exercise. And then if you pursue that too far, you might need to make it a feel based exercise again. Like there's a little bit of back and forth with how these things progress over time. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Your number, number one takeaway, Tim. It is this concept of inhibition before facilitation, which I think has been around for a while. I can remember hearing that phrase in PRI courses in like 2013, but it's something that a lot of our guests mentioned. And it's something that I wanted to remind myself of the importance of, because I think especially when it comes to improving movement quality, mm-hmm. it's really, really easy to want to tell someone to turn a muscle on, push harder, generate more tension. And it's really difficult to get a person to get things to turn off kind of to your point, like move slower, move with less tension. So Zach mentioned how he's really into rolling progressions for low threshold movement, how he's starting to think more about uh, letting full inhales be more important than the full exhales that a lot of us were coaching five or six years ago. David Gray talks about how the inhalation is key for restoring movement and how if a person can't get airflow into a certain area of the rib cage or pressure into a certain area of their pelvis, that's going to result in direct movement limitation. Your guest, Sarah Duvall talked a lot about how runners and lifters tend to be too toned up. So getting them to just activate other stuff is going to make their movement profile worse, not better. And then really in a 30,000 foot view context, Seth talks about this, this notion of how we need to reduce physiologic demand before we introduce more physiologic demand. So if a person's in chronic pain, their system is always under threat. We need to do things to tone that down before we ever think about introducing something like even low level conditioning to their program, because their system already has too much stress that it's, that it's not dealing with in a productive manner. So in general, the value of inhibiting things, of of turning things off, of turning things down before we facilitate things. It's not to say that we should never facilitate things. There's definitely a role for trying hard and pushing and squeezing muscles and generating tension, but we need to make sure that we can relax before we just keep on more tension. No, I I like that a lot. Yeah. You and Zach kind of touched on that. He gave the example of like a a golf swing. Uh, You can't force a swing. Um, in season one, Eric Huddleston, he talked a little bit about, uh, he calls isolatory isometrics, but basically you drop a weight, say like a row, and then you catch it and return it. And it's the same thing of being able to kind of like reduce tension. And then, I mean, he does it for a little bit of a, a different reason, but that's kind of like what I think about of like that being able to relax and then, and then produce like really quickly and then oscillate between those. Yeah. I think I, those drills are really interesting to me too. Cause they can like, you can perform them in a couple different ways, mm-hmm. right? Like you could have a high tension person, just sort of maintain a high degree of tension through like, And you can kind of see it. Like when I, like I prescribe a oscillate, like an oscillatory split squat drop all the time. And sometimes you don't get that moment of the person dissipating tension. Like they, they kind of figure out how to use muscles to like pull themselves down So it's like, I think those drills can be really, really impactful, but they do have to be executed in a certain way. And it really is like, it's a, this is what max, max velocity running, I think does this really, really well because it's, it's impossible to run 
even like 90% of your maximum speed with a ton of muscular tension. Mm-hmm. And so that becomes a, a really, really useful practice for teaching people to relax into, you know, quick foot turnover and more of this like hip disassociation, hip range of motion. Yeah. Those things that the drops in catches, um, in isolatory isometrics, when I used to work with athletes, it's amazing how quickly they would be able to do it. And it just looks absolutely amazing. But when general population clients do it recently, it just, it looks like a squat. It looks like a row. <laughs> it's, it's really hard to, um, see a difference between just like a normal row and then like dropping and releasing and letting go. It just, they're just not used to it and can't really do it uh, too well at first. Yeah. Like Joel talks a lot with acceleration and sprint mechanics about letting the fall happen, like Mm -hmm. letting, letting gravity win at certain parts of the gait cycle. And that's what I, you know, I think the, the IFAST crowd talks a lot about this, like yielding behavior of soft tissue. I think they're all Mm -hmm. talking about the same thing. They're talking about like, can, can things relax to a sufficient degree to actually utilize a stretch shorten cycle or to actually like load the muscle that you're trying to work. Yeah, exactly. And make sure that like the loads are appropriate. And that I even reflect back to like triphasic training and his like loading prescriptions for like eccentrics. Cause right. If it's like too heavy, you're just squeezing the whole time you're, you're coming down. Right. It has to be at a good um, loading percentage to be able to let that yielding quality take place. Yeah. And I think this is at the heart of the whole, like, I can't feel my glutes when I do X. Like very rarely is it a case where the glute can't shorten fully. It's almost always some version of the glute can't load because the hip can't load because stuff is too tight somewhere in like the structure of the pelvis or the hip. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like that. Um, okay. So I'm at number one right now. You are. Is that right? Nice. Okay. So this is kind of like that struggle between balancing movement versus physiological adaptations. Uh, And this really comes from Mike Camparini's talk and Zach Couples. So is your your number one, just your number two? (laughs) Basically. Well, you were kind of talking about a few things. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not going to follow up with anything because he's basically talking about that stuff. Well, that was kind of related towards like skills more of a learning thing more of like movement. I think of like range of motion and like access to motion a little bit more. And of course this is all basically the same stuff, right? Learning to move with less tension will kind of gain you some of those movement qualities back. So there's kind of been like two themes. I even, you guys chatted a little bit about like the David Gray episode here. It's like, either creating exercises, kind of like my three rules of like, you know, alternating grips, offset loading, or like offset stances for like typical bilateral exercises, like pull-ups, deadlifts, even push-ups, going down that route where you're still, you know, creating enough work, enough kind of um, adaptations but without some of like the baggage of like bilateral lifting, squeezing type of activity, or kind of just creating like a dichotomy of uh, outputs or outputs. And then like accessory work focus more on like the low, low loading, very specific movements, restoration. And it's all, this needs context, right? Of course, like it depends on who you're working with. Um, I still, there's something deep down in my soul that will never stop bilateral deadlifting and I don't, I don't need to, you know, it doesn't cause me any harm, um, physically or emotionally. So we're good, but, (laughs) um, you know, I still, I still feel pretty good when I offset load those things and, but excuse me. And then the Camperini episode, I specifically asked him a question of like, you know, I, I did a kickstand trap bar deadlift, um, with, for 225 for three reps. And I was squeezing that whole time. Like that's a, that was a max effort for me. 
um, feel like I could do it pretty easily for the most part, but I was asking him like, is that defeating like the purpose of like what you're trying to do if I max load those types of activities? And he of course says like, it depends. Like we would need to like make sure you can still have access to ranges of motion and how you're feeling and how that's what consequences that's coming with. I feel like that's, it's that answer like always rubs you like the wrong way because it's like, you want a solid fact. But I, I, for me, I think it does. Like I, I think what's the difference between me loading something up like that and doing like a, a bilateral deadlift? I don't, I don't think it would be too much different. And then a kickstand deadlift I can do with a kettlebell and be a little bit more less tension throughout that movement. Yeah. So I guess where are you at with that now, like in your own training or in your own practice with the, with the human beings that you manage, like, are you going heavy with the, are you essentially doing heavy bilateral work, but with these small tweaks as your primary physiologic adaptation exercises, the kickstand deads and the mixed grip pull-ups and. I would say that's a great question. I would say I kind of split it. So with my own training, and if I was still working with high-level athletes in the summer, I'll, I'll have a few. I'm going to follow my rules where I'll make these minor tweaks and changes to high output activities. But for the majority of the people that I work with, which are general population, more so older clientele, it is extremely hard and challenging as a coach to get them to have high output activities. So when I want to do that, which is very low, very low volume, quick stimulus, I want them to go and, and, and get those types of things. And I'll put them in positions, which will be bilateral positions to get those outputs. Okay. So for like, for your, you know, for, for Kathy, for 55 year old Kathy, you're Hey, just, just get in that hex bar and and pull it off the ground. Exactly. Because she doesn't have the training age or the skills to do like a kickstand trap bar deadlift, like really well. So it's like, well, then it's not, it's going to be in the no man's land because it's not going to be high enough output. And then it's not going to be really having positive benefits for her. So why not bilateral deadlift? hit a couple sets, a couple reps, challenge her a little bit and then kind of move on. Yeah. I also think like there's a client I'm working with now with fairly limited left hip range of motion. And when we try to do heavy kickstand trap bar deadlifts, like with that left foot forward, with the left, you know, left lower extremity as the thing we're trying to load, he just can't get like a consistently good sensation of loading out of that left leg. But if we do really light, you know, with like a 15 pound kettlebell, like isometric or tempo stuff, we can get a good sensation of loading out of that left leg. And then when he does like a bilateral normal trap bar deadlift, things feel fine. So, you know, like what's happening there probably is doing something compensatory in the bilateral trap bar deadlift, but it's not hurting. He likes doing it. It's getting him adaptation. Then in my mind, we're, we're chasing some kind of movement outcome or a maintenance of a movement profile with the accessory work, which, you know, per my discussion with David Gray is kept really, really light. And that might not be ideal long-term. Like I do question, you know, is it, is it a problem that we can't get a good sensation of loading with a heavier staggered stance deadlift? I don't know. I've been working together for a while and it seems to be going okay. Like he seems to consistently get pain when we try to do like a, a kickstand trap bar deadlift with heavier loading into a joint that he's restricted into. So like, I think, you know, as, as a general way of operating, I really do like the alternating stuff, the mixed grip stuff, the staggered stand stuff. And I think for most people it does work, but there's certainly a, a to your point, there's a time and a context where it just becomes too high tension and you might as well just be doing the normal bilateral thing. And there's a context where range of motion is just too restricted and it needs to be something that's just an easier position to get into if we're going to have any shot of having physiologic adaptation. Yeah, exactly. And it's, so I think it's more of a, how are you going to structure it? And it can't be uh, either, or it has to be in kind of both. It has to 
fall in line. You have to have this overarching idea, bringing us back to the first takeaway, but then being able to structure it um, and implement it on an individual basis. See the forest, see the trees. Love it. See both sides of the fence. (laughs) All right. So I think we crushed the takeaways of season two. Yeah. Yeah. Any other uh, closing comments about season two? I can't believe it's over. Now we have to start talking about season three. I'm not ready. (laughs) (laughs) This is the beautiful thing about recording this stuff in seasons is we actually get like a washout period and we get to reflect on the direction that we want to take things. But I think, you know, I think with the guests that we chose for season two relative to season one, it's like we already, yeah, I had some great conversations, definitely things that I hope are going to stay in my clinical practice for years and years to come. And this thing is just fun. Like <laughs> talking to these yeah. people or talking to you is fun. Yeah. And even listening to your episodes with people is, is really fun. Um, I get a lot out of this and I'm so happy that uh, I think last week was the Seth episode that got released. Cause he's actually going to speak at the seminar that I'm putting together called the Boston health and performance summit in Boston. And so I think it's even giving people you know, a little taste of, of what's to come at that event, which is going to be amazing. And even when I talked about my first takeaway, you know, the whole seminar is going to be structured around that idea of like, yes, you're getting information today, but let, let's take some time out to consolidate what you already know and like where, where that's going to fit in. And so I'm, I'm happy that, you know, this past season's got a little taste of like biomechanics in it, but then also like the principles and concepts that are involved in training that are are both equally as important. Yeah. Very well said. Cool. All right. Thanks, Tim. Of course. It's been a pleasure. And uh, I thank you to all of our listeners. Thank you to anchor for their generous sponsorship and looking forward to season three at some point. Yeah. Anchor that NTLP code discount code will still be in full effect. So if you haven't grabbed onto that, I use it every single day and it's just an absolutely amazing product and they're a phenomenal company. Uh, So thank you everyone for listening to season two and hopefully we will be back. See you guys in season three. Thank you for listening to the More Train, Less Pain podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. The more positive reviews we get, the easier it becomes for fine movement professionals like you to find us. And the more time Michelle and I can devote to bringing on high caliber guests and continuing to produce a high quality show. If you're still listening, that means you're pretty cool. And that likely means your friends are pretty cool too. We'd love for them to become fans of the show. Spread the injury prevention love and the biomechanical knowledge by sharing a screenshot of your favorite episode on Instagram. Be sure to tag at Dr. Michelle Bolin and at Tim Richard DPT when you do. Now get out there and go train.